From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Politics Hour, starring Tom Sherwood. I'm Kojo Nandi. Tom Sherwood is our resident analyst and contributing writer for Washington City Paper. Tom Sherwood, welcome. Hello, everybody. Later in the broadcast, we'll be joined by Congressman Jamie Raskin of Maryland, but joining us now is Jeff McKay, the chairman of the Fairfax County Board of Supervisors. Chairman McKay, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Kojo. Good to be with you again. Tom Sherwood, let's talk about another Jeffrey first, this being D.C. CFO Jeffrey DeWitt, who is announcing plans to resign next month. He says he wants to be closer to family in Kansas, so he's taking a job in Kansas. But as I said in the billboard earlier, a lot of people might be saying, who's Jeffrey DeWitt? D.C. has only had three chief financial officers since we first started in the 1990s. Tell us a little bit more about Mr. DeWitt. Well, Mr. DeWitt has, uh, did a su- surprise everyone by announcing he's going to the University of Kansas. And far be it for me to correct you, Coach O, but there have been four chief financial officers. Tony Williams took over the job in the late in the mid-90s as the first CFO after the city was emerging from bankruptcy. And then very br- after he quit to run for mayor, Valerie Holt, was temporarily oh, the CFO. Oh, I forgot her. People, I forgot yes, that, yes. <laughs> yes, but she was unable to produce an annual budget, and she was out pretty quickly under Mayor Vincent Gray, and Nat Gandhi, who was her deputy, uh, took over, and he stayed until 2014-13 when Jeffrey DeWitt came along. DeWitt is exactly what you just suggested. He doesn't look for headlines. He's tough on budget numbers. He puts out a, so much information, it's hard to keep up with it. But he has family in, I think it's Leavenworth, uh, Kansas. I always think, isn't there a prison there? Always, not the University of Kansas. He's going, to be the, he's going to be the CFO and a vice chancellor there at the university. His daughter is married and lives there. She just had a, a, a child, so he has a grandchild there. And so he decided he would, even though he was approved for a second five-year term in 2017, he decided he would go. Unfortunately, he's leaving at the heart of a major budget decision-making for the district. Uh, but uh, the mayor said this week she'll have an interim in place before March 9th when he leaves and that the, the city will get through the, the next budget cycle. And just very briefly... The next budget cycle may be shocking to people. After all the cuts and worries from this past year, if the district gets its money from the federal government, it will have about $2 billion to address reserves that have been spent and other programs the council has been anxious to do. So there's a lot of money stuff going to be happening with a new CFO, whoever it is. And you mentioned, I think, Mayor Bowser. She isn't undertaking a new gun violence initiative that includes opening a gun violence emergency operations center in Anacostia. What's going on? Well, if you were running for the, against the mayor next year, if she seeks a third term, 
Uh, crime and, you know, violence, gun violence, homicides, uh, car jackings, car thefts. There are some real serious issues. The mayor has tried any different ways to address the violence. Last year, 198 homicides was the highest in 15 years. So this week, the mayor announced a new bureaucratic uh, a government program to address the issue. And it, there's a unique aspect of it. It's called Building Blocks D.C., and she says the city government and all its agencies are going to focus on 151 blocks where 41 percent of the gun crimes occur. 151 blocks. That's about 2 percent of the city. So she says they're going to focus on it. She has a new director of gun violence, Linda Harper. Uh, who's going to have an office in Anacostia. And I think the other thing, which was not reported very much this week. And I should I mention the, that, Tom Sherwood, you're the one who broke, this, who broke the story about Jeffrey DeWitt. Well, but thank you ahead. for bringing that up. Even belatedly, thank you for bringing that up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the other aspect of this important uh, move that the mayor is making is that I've talked a lot on this program about how the mayor and the Attorney General Carl Racine do not have a, they have a strained relationship. And Carl Racine runs his own anti-gun violence program out of his office, and never the twain shall meet. But when I checked with, and no one was at, no one from the attorney general's office was at the mayor's press conference this week. So I called the attorney general's office. I said, where do you guys fit in? And I'm happy to, to report that the office of attorney general says that they have in fact been contacted by Linda Harper, the new gun czar, uh, to work with the mayor's office to get a, a hold on these uh, gun crimes. So that's good news. So they are on board. On board with us right now is Jeff McKay, the chairman of the Fairfax County Board of Supervisors. Chairman McKay, across the region, we've been seeing a decline in COVID-19 cases. And according to Angela Woolsey's report in Reston, now Fairfax County had also been seeing that downward trend, but it's apparently leveled off since mid-January. How would you characterize the COVID-19 situation in Fairfax County right now? Well, first, I'm, I'm very proud of the work that, you know, our staff and health department has done in attacking uh, this challenge. But clearly, uh, there's a lack of vaccine, and that lack of vaccine is having an impact uh, on our community. Right now, uh, I have over 100,000 people on the waiting list for a vaccine. That's down, uh, thankfully, from 180,000 where it was a few weeks ago. Uh, but we're not getting nearly the number of vaccines uh, from this, from our state and federal partners that we need to meet demand. And so what we have been doing, obviously vaccinating people as soon as we get them, they're going into people's arms in a sophisticated way, but we have the capacity to vaccine, you know, to, to administer vaccines to, to tens of thousands of additional people if we had the vaccine in hand. And so that's our biggest challenge. Obviously we're tackling vaccine hesitancy uh, in certain communities uh, that we were keeping a close eye on. Uh, But right now, my challenge is not local resources and not local administration. My challenge is a lack of vaccine doses, and that's the the biggest concern that we have. Well, the Virginia Department of Health unveiled a new statewide vaccine registration system, but Fairfax County is sticking with its own system and won't participate. Why? Uh, We are at this time because there's a lot of anxiety in the community. Uh, There's a lot of fear that folks have, and there's a lot of confusion. And setting up a new portal, uh, when we have a portal that's working very well in Fairfax, would have been only one more layer uh, of confusion and anxiety for the people that I represent. And so uh, we may 
in the future, transition over to the state program, but frankly, uh, want to make sure it works and works well uh, to begin with before we add another layer of confusion to our folks. We did have and do have the most sophisticated system in the Commonwealth of Virginia until the state system was unveiled. Uh, our system works well. Our people have learned to use it. They're confident in it. Uh, and frankly, you know, down the road, uh, we may transition. But right now, it was a major concern of ours that it would be another source of confusion. And there is certainly a lot of confusion out there right now about vaccines, about how to get them, about what the challenges are we're facing. Uh, and we wanted to make sure we weren't adding to that problem. Tom Sherwood. Um, Chairman, thank you for joining us today. You know, I've been watching the national figures. We're right at <clears throat> just a, a thousand or two short of 500,000 deaths. It's a number I really don't even, I can't even appreciate, but it's an extraordinary number. We've had five weeks now across the nation of declining numbers of, of, uh, of infections. What is the pressure on you to reopen uh, a relaxed standards in Fairfax County. You were quoted, I think, earlier this week saying until we start getting much higher volumes of people vaccinated, it wouldn't make sense for us to reopen some of the floodgates. Is there something you can do to reopen short of floodgates? Well, first, the county in, in Virginia, counties don't have that lever of control like they do in Maryland in the district. And so we're reliant on the governor and the governor's orders. We're in regular communication uh, with him. Uh, frankly, I like to follow the science. And if we're seeing significant improvements, those improvements should run parallel uh, with any reopening activities. At the beginning of this pandemic, many of us in the Northern Virginia region saw alarming numbers that didn't match what was happening in the rest of the state. And we requested that the governor look at us as a region and perhaps slow down uh, the urgency to reopen our economy too early. And I think we've seen the results of that now. That was the right move. And so we have come a long way. People have made tremendous sacrifices over the last year. Uh, we want to be careful to not blow that at this point. Look, we've administered over 165,000 vaccine doses in the county to date. We're, we're making progress. We still have a long way to go. Uh, but I don't want to send a message to the community that it's just safe now to go out and do everything we were doing before because we know uh, we're not quite there yet. And I have to think about, you know, our long-term strategies here, our long-term recovery, not what happens this week or next week, but what is the county going to look like and what is our economy going to look like in a few months? And certainly if we see ramp-ups in vaccine availability, as we've been promised at the federal and state level, uh, those ramp-ups hopefully will help us get to a, a more robust reopening quicker. But we have to approach with caution. We have to follow the numbers and we have to not ignore the many sacrifices people have made to get us to this point and the, blow the, that because it's normal, because it's not normal the, yet. Yeah, the, the numbers are better in the state. I think the governor this week announced that there was a $700 million surplus in several governments in our region and, and elsewhere have announced that the hit to the economy was bad, but not nearly as bad as some had projected. What right now is the status of the Fairfax County budget, given that 65% of your budget comes from monies from commercial real estate? Uh, well, 65% comes from real estate in general. And the driver of that right now is not commercial, it's residential, which is, of course, a double-edged sword in, in the area of housing affordability. But to answer your question, we are proje projecting uh, a $73 million budget shortfall. 
uh, going into the next fiscal year. And as you know, Virginia, uh, local governments are not allowed to run deficits by constitution. And so we are projecting $73 million shortfall for next fiscal year that will have to be addressed in the next budget. And so we, we thought that number would be worse. Uh, but $73 million is not insignificant as we work to put together a budget next year. And we also know that because, as you point out, a lot of our budget is based on real estate, that the assessed values of those real estate holdings uh, may not be fully known and the impact may not be fully appreciated for years because those numbers lag the real budget. And so I okay. think we're in this for a couple of years. Got to take a short break. When we come back, we'll continue this conversation with Jeff McKay, the chairman of the Fairfax County Board of Supervisors. I'm Kojo Nam. Hi, it's Diane. The next meeting of my book club is on Wednesday, May 31st at 1 p.m. Eastern. I'll host a discussion of Mad Honey by Jody Pico and Jennifer Finney Boylan, followed by a conversation with the authors. Find out more and register at dianereem.org slash book club. Welcome back. Our guest is Jeff McKay, chairman of the Fairfax County Board of Supervisors. Here is Chris in Falls Church, Virginia. Chris, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Chairman McKay. I just wanted to say thank you. Um, Older relatives and friends are being vaccinated here in Fairfax County. So keep on keeping on, and we'll get there. Okay, thank you for your call, Chris. On a slightly different note, here is John in Clifton. John, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you very much. Uh, I registered with Fairfax County uh, on the 19th of, uh, of the month and it got notice that it, the registration had taken effect, but then got notice yesterday, I think, that uh, my registration had rolled over to the Virginia system. And I'm just wondering, given what you said earlier about not participating in the Virginia system, how that's possible, or what does it mean? Uh, so that's the first I've heard that. I will say that you know we're we are not in the state system at this point. But anyone who registers with the state, their information automatically comes to Fairfax County and is a part of our uh, registration queue. And so, if you have registered with the county already, uh, you have nothing to be concerned about. And any information that comes <clears throat> from the state at this point about registration. Uh, should be ignored at this time. We know a lot of people got notices from the state, um, and some of them may have registered in other counties and also in Fairfax. And so there is some confusion over that. But the bottom line is if you've registered on the Fairfax County portal and you got an email telling you that you were registered with Fairfax County, there's nothing that the state uh, program will do that will affect you and, and where you are in the queue. So you should be good to go. Thank you for your call, John. Tom Sherwood talked earlier about these county's budget. How are Fairfax County businesses faring, particularly restaurants? And is the county providing any aid for them? Uh, we are. We've put uh, almost $50 million into a federal RISE grant for small businesses. And a majority of the recipients of those grants were small businesses with zero to 10 employees uh, or, in fact, um, you know, businesses that are minority-owned. Uh, and a lot of them are in the hospitality restaurant business. We know that there's a disproportionality in impact on our businesses, not just in sector, 
uh, but, but also in ownership status. And so we have targeted a lot of our grant programs to those industries most impacted. As we move forward, clearly the hospitality industry is going to need additional assistance from the county. And we're working on additional ways to help them uh, as we move forward because they have been very disproportionately hurt when you look overall at business. But, you know, we are faring better than we expected. Uh, but that success is not trickling down into a lot of industries that are going to need our continued help. Tom Sherwood. Part of this, uh, a friend of mine was telling me he was driving by the Capital One building there in Fairfax, and it's, um, he was amazed at all the construction going on around there. Last week I mentioned I was going out Washington Boulevard in Arlington and saw extraordinary construction. One thing, has the, any construction, to your knowledge, been delayed or slowed down or stopped because of the expectation that workers may not return in large numbers to office buildings? Uh, no, Tom, we've not seen that at all. Um, in fact, we've seen people taking advantage of this time to get a, a lot of construction work done. We've had a lot of requests to expedite permitting and, and speed up our review process so that people can take advantage of the, the low interest rates that are out there uh, for construction and real estate. And frankly, I think we've laid a foundation of investment in the county that is is leading to success, whether it's the Silver Line construction or the $1 billion we're getting ready to invest in a BRT system on Route 1, uh, the infrastructure matters. And I have not seen uh, any projects delayed or stopped as a result of the pandemic. In fact, we've experienced the exact opposite. Last month, Fairfax County supervisors voted to prohibit county employees from working with federal immigration agents. Uh, why was this a priority for you? Were Fairfax County police cooperating with federal agents? Well, it was a huge priority for me because it has always been our practice in the county, but frankly, it had never been codified. And we need to be crystal clear, not only with our employees, but also with the community, what expectations are. We do not voluntarily share information with ICE. We have a police general order that says that. Uh, and I think it's more important now than ever. You know, we're talking about vaccine. We're talking about testing. We're talking about COVID-19. And our community needs to have confidence in their local government, and we need everyone who's living in the county to register, to get a vaccination, to get tested, to help us fight this pandemic. So in a lot of ways, it's never been more important now than to have local government be seen as a trusted source for people, regardless of their immigration status, uh, to help us get through this pandemic. And so the timing of it uh, was vital to have this passed on January 26th. It's the first in the Commonwealth of Virginia. I can guarantee you it won't be the last because it's morally the right thing to do. Uh, but more importantly, it's it's logistically the right thing to do, especially when there's a lot of hesitancy in the community about getting vaccinated and a lot of distrust of government, frankly, as a result of the last four years. And we've got a lot of work to do in that area to rebuild confidence with our community. Tom Sherwood. Did I read the number correctly that... Uh, 40 percent of the residents of Fairfax who are over five years of old age speak a language other than English at home. Is that right? 40 percent? That That is right. We are a very wow. diverse community. Um, and, and really, that's our strength. Um, it's, it's our strength economically. It's, it's our strength culturally. 
Uh, and it gives us an advantage over many other parts of the country that don't have that rich diversity and you know, don't have the workforce that we have and the assets that we have. So it's a statistic we're very proud of, but it's absolutely right. And frankly, I think we'll continue to trend upward. Um, Virginia no longer has an eviction moratorium in place. And with the weather and the pandemic, being evicted is a more dire situation than ever before. How is Fairfax County addressing this problem? So we're doing it multiple ways. One, uh, we have a hotline that people can call, uh, and that hotline will help them with any financial support that they need, whether it's housing, whether it's utilities, uh, whether it's food assistance. Um, They can call that number. Uh, We have added uh, in the last year over 1,000 new units of affordable housing in the county under this uh, board's leadership. And we've recently received a Department of Treasury emergency rental assistance grant of $34 million that our residents can use to make sure that they stay in their homes. Uh, We pressed uh, Richmond repeatedly to extend the uh, moratorium uh, on evictions. We supported those. And we obviously know now that some of that's coming to a head. And so we have money sitting uh, in our hotline call center to be put out to anyone who can feels like they cannot afford to pay their rent and is, is at risk of eviction. And they should call that number, 703-222-0880, to get assistance. And, and we have the resources and finances to be able to aid them. Here now is Susan in Reston. Susan, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, thank you for doing this great Q&A. I registered on the 18th for my shot at about 1 p.m. in the afternoon. However, I did not receive any acknowledgments until 10 p.m. that night. Given that you're first come, first serve, am I logged in your system at my 1 p.m. registration or my 10 p.m. acknowledgment? Uh, you're, logged, you're logged in when you first registered at the earlier time. Um, there is a time delay and some notifications going out that people are registered, but you are time stamped in at the time you initially register. So in your case, the earlier time. We only have about a minute, a minute left. So I'll go where Tom Sherwood likes to go politics about the governor's <laughs> race. Um, a poll from the Watson Center at Christopher Newport University has found that half of Democratic voters are undecided on who they're going to support in the primary and the governor's race. Who will you support? Well, I've publicly supported uh, former Governor Terry McAuliffe. Um, I think he has the background and the experience that is necessary uh, right now, given this profound effect of of the pandemic. Uh, So at this time, I think it's essential to have someone who understands uh, how the state works, understands the importance of counties. And, you know, I have faith in Terry to be that person. I will say that Democrats in particular have an amazing slate of phenomenal candidates. And, and, you know, Jennifer McClellan, who is also in the race, someone I've known in, since college days. Uh, that's how long we've been friends. She would be an amazing governor as well. Uh, we have a, a, an embarrassment of richness uh, in the slate of Democrats running for governor. But uh, I have supported Terry McAuliffe, and, and I think he'll do an amazing job if he gets a second shot. Jeff McKay. Do you, do, you, do, you include, do you include Justin Fairfax in that list of amazing candidates? He seems to be having a quiet campaign. Well, I know Justin. He's a friend. I know he's had some, some challenges. Uh, frankly, I don't blame him for running. I, you know, he has some great experience as lieutenant governor. Um, I'm not supporting okay. him for governor at this time, but I do think he's a, a good candidate. Jeff McKay, thank you so much for joining us. Jeff McKay is the chairman of the Fairfax County Board of Supervisors. Up next, Congressman Jamie Raskin. 
I'm Kojo Lam. Welcome back. Joining us now is Jamie Raskin. He's a member of the U.S. House of Representatives for Maryland's 8th Congressional District, which includes parts of Montgomery, Carroll, and Frederick Counties. Congressman Raskin, thank you for joining us. Coach, I'm delighted to be with you. Congressman Raskin, let's start on January 6th, the day of the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol. Tell us what that day was like for you, especially where were you? Well, that was a really hard day. Um, <clears throat> the, the day before Kojo, um, we um, we had laid to rest um, my son, Tommy Raskin, and um, I had brought with me on January 6th to the Hill um, our youngest daughter, Tabitha, and um, my new son-in-law, uh, Hank, who married our older daughter, Hannah. And so they were with me, um, and we were using Stenny Hoyer's office off of the house floor. And um, I was one of the managers of the majority team that was refuting the objections to electoral college votes being received from PA and from Arizona and from Georgia and other states. And so they'd come to the floor to see me. And then after I spoke, they went back to that room. Uh, And unbeknownst to them, there'd been a breach in the Capitol and none of us knew it, but very quickly we did. And it was... um, it, it was a you know an hour or two of true terror there because um, you know the insurrectionists were trying to basically you know knock down the door you know barge into the door and that was a, a hellish sound that we heard um, and I had no way of getting back to be with Tabitha and Hank so they were barricaded inside that room with my chief of staff uh, Julie Taken they had pushed all the furniture up against the door they were hiding under. Uh, the desk and um, and Julie had actually found a, a fire pick in the fireplace that she was holding up over the door in case anybody got in. So um, it was, you know, it was terrifying. And um, we tried to tell part of that story of what happened on January 6th at the, the trial uh, of the impeachment of you President Trump. Did. And you mentioned yeah. and you mentioned the passing of your son Tommy Bloom Raskin. So, allow me, on behalf of our entire production team, our entire station, mm-hmm. to say uh, to offer our condolences on the passing of your son, Tom Sherwood. Uh, Congressman, thank you for joining us. I know it's been an extraordinary period of time for you, and I appreciate the time you're giving us today. Let me ask you about the follow-up from the riot. Um, the heavy fencing that has gone up around the Capitol buildings. I have driven around it. Kojo knows I've ranted about it. Um, not, a, I, I'm not the only person who knows this, Tom. The entire <laughs> region knows that you rant about these barriers. <laughs> and there's, there was clearly, there will be investigations, the speaker has said, about the U.S. Capitol Police and what its management, not its heroic officers, but what its management failed to do to anticipate what was about to happen. Where are you on the fence? When can I know there's a State of the Union coming up, and that will probably stay to then. But where are you as you work there and you have to pass through these 10-foot fences? Where are you on these fences coming down and what might be put up permanently in its place if we're not careful? Well, the, it's one more terrible casualty of the 
<clears throat> of the violence that we experienced on January 6th. I mean, one of the great things about our open democratic government is just the fluidity and the transparency and the ease of access to our institutions. And, um, you know, add that to, um, you know, the, the fallout of Donald Trump's incitement and mobilization of a violent mob to take over Congress and to uh, lay siege and waste to uh, the Capitol the way that they did. Uh, I'm hoping that we can um, come back to a place where it's open to the people. Um, and obviously, it's got to be secure. I mean, the time for the security um, heightened precautions should have been January 6th. And um, it, it, that that has been a real problem. So I agree with you about that, Tom. We've got to get back to um, you know, the idea that in democracy, the government belongs to the people. Let me also ask you, this week there was news that there are 35 police officers. There are 2,000, about 2,000 Capitol Police officers. There was news this week that 35 of them are being investigated for potentially helping the rioters. Do you have any sense of that? Uh, there might be some delay with the congressman because he's joining us on Zoom. Mm. And if that's not working out, we can also reach him by phone. But Congressman Raskin, are you there? In that case, while we're trying to get him properly hooked up by phone, I'm going to go to the telephone. And I know there are people who wonder about the impeachment trial, such as Pam and Frederick. Pam, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hi, Pam. So, Joe, I'm afraid I've lost. Pam and Frederick, are you there? Yes. Can you hear me? Yes, very well. Go right ahead as we try can to reconnect. Okay. Yes, okay. go right ahead. Great. Okay. Uh, I'm a constituent and uh, I want to say Dr. Uh, Congressman Raskin did uh, brilliant work. My question is, will he and Congress be pursuing the 14th Amendment against Donald Trump? And if not, why not? Congressman Raskin, are you back yet? Not yet, Congressman Baskin. So I'm going to pick, take a note of these questions and make sure I ask them to the congressman when he joins us shortly on the phone. Here now is Duru in Silver Spring. Duru, your turn. Oh, thanks. Um, so basically, I find it a bit maddening that the constitutionality question was settled. Um, that's why they proceeded to the trial. And then you have people like McConnell saying, well, I'm acquitting because I don't think it's constitutional to, to try a non-sitting president but, or impeach a non-sitting president. But basically, I'm, I'm agreeing to everything that the prosecution is asserting. Well, yeah. while we're waiting, is, he, is the congressman back? Yes, go right ahead. Um, well, we have... I want to thank Juru for saying that. I mean, this. Um, I share his frustration, absolutely. We, we dealt with that as a threshold procedural issue in the trial. We said, fine, let's have a debate about it. And we had two hours um, of debate on it, uh, you know, with each side participating. And there were two weeks on that question in the Belknap uh, case in 1876. And the Senate has always rejected the idea that it cannot conduct a trial of uh, a public official who was tried for conduct committed while in office and impeached by the House of Representatives while in office. So this wasn't a new issue and it wasn't a hard issue. 
we settled it as a threshold procedural question. And then, you know, I tried to emphasize to the senators their job now was to sit as jurors hearing the facts of the case and not go back to that. But they all wanted to hang their hat on it, even though with Mitch McConnell, many of them said we had overwhelmingly proven our case, which, of course, we did. The facts were overwhelming on our side. They were uh, unrefuted and we think irrefutable. But certainly uh, Trump's lawyers did nothing uh, to lay a glove on our case. And Pam and Frederick Maryland wanted to know if you plan on pursuing the 14th Amendment against Trump. And if not, why not? Um, well, the 14th Amendment, Section 3, is directly applicable to what the president has done because he committed mm. uh, insurrection and rebellion against the Union. Some people are saying, well, that it's only applicable to the Civil War. But, of course, there's nothing on its terms that applies just to the Civil War. It's in general engaging in insurrection or rebellion. It's a fascinating legislative history, Tojo, because some people were saying, well, anybody who participated in the Confederacy shouldn't be able to vote or hold office. And the radical Republicans in Congress said that's too broad, that sweeps too far afield. Let's focus on the people who actually swore an oath under the Constitution to uphold the Constitution and to defend it, and then betrayed the country and betrayed their oath. Those people should never be able to serve again. So Donald Trump is right in the center of that prohibition. And so uh, I think that Congress will be exploring ways to make clear that he ran afoul of the 14th Amendment, in addition to violating his oath of office and subjecting himself to the conviction vote, which uh, I want to emphasize was 57 to 43. So it was a, a very strong vote to convict the president. It was the biggest bipartisan Senate uh, majority vote in a presidential impeachment trial in U.S. history. And we got seven Republicans who were from all over the country, New England, Mid-Atlantic, the South, Midwest, California, you know, uh, Alaska. So all over the country. And those people are now, uh, as you know, being uh, subjected to a roundup by right wing council culture as they try to um, censure them in the state Republican parties. Tom Sherwood. Uh, Congressman, this is the uh, politics hour, as you know. You said a couple of years ago that, quote, my ambition is not to be in the political center. It is to be in the moral center. I think you're only in your third term. Is that correct? Yeah, I just started my third term. Just started your third term. You now have international identification for the work you've done on the impeachment trial. How do you assess the long-term effect on what you plan to do? Are you looking to be to run for re-election next year? Probably yes. But are you looking to stay in the House? Are you, if Ben Cardin were to decide not to run in 2024, would you even think about? Have people mentioned to you? Have you thought about running for the Senate if Ben Cardin decided not to seek another term? Just where are you? How are you going to use this political uh, power, frankly, that you, and that you now have? Well, um, let's see. I mean, thank you for saying that stuff, Tom. And I, I understand that when I was off uh, leading the uh, the impeachment trial effort with the managers that you guys were saying nice stuff about me, which made me very suspicious about what was going on. Uh, <laughs> it, was, it was to but, set up uh, the question uh, I just I, asked. What are you doing next? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I don't I, I honestly don't know the answer to that. I'm uh, passionately committed to my work in the House of Representatives and to representing um, the great people in Montgomery and Frederick and Carroll counties. And that's really all I want to do right now. I mean, I'm, we're not out of the woods with this thing. I mean, you know, Donald Trump has been declaring himself uh, 
exonerated or rehabilitated by this, which is, uh, of course, absurd. You know, I mean, he he certainly beat the constitutional spread, which was two thirds. But 57 percent of the U.S. Senate voted to convict him, um, a commanding majority of the House and the Senate. But we still we, we still have him, you know, pandering to racist, violent, insurrectionist forces in the country. So I'm going to be out there fighting, as I always have been, for strong democracy, Tom. And, you know, I, I'm not somebody who has been, um, you know, addicted to a particular um, kind of uh, journey in public office. I just want to really be part of the movement for strong democracy in America and making sure we're making progress for our kids and our grandchildren. Will you, will you travel Will you travel the country in, in the 2022 congressional campaigns to help people uh, uh, win and keep the democratic control? With the census coming now and the Supreme Court opening the door to gerrymandering, the Democrats could have a very difficult time in the next 18 months, two years. Yeah, I agree with that. And I will be doing whatever I can to uh, defend and expand the Democratic majorities in the House and the Senate. Um, I believe that Donald Trump has been convicted in the court of public opinion. He has been convicted in the court of history. Um, and he may indeed uh, be leading to the destruction of the Republican Party, which we should take no joy or delight in, especially if it's going to become an increasingly right-wing, authoritarian, uh, fascistic kind of party. Um but we have to be out in the country giving people hope, teaching people about the Constitution, teaching people about our history and moving the country forward in the way that we've been able to make political and social progress in our history. So, yes, I will be very much part of that process. And as soon as we can really start to travel again, I will be traveling. Before I get back to the phones, I know Tom Sherwood wants to ask you about some other courts that the former president might find himself in. Tom Sherwood? <laughs> well, Yes, uh, the the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell said at the end of his a remarkable speech where he agreed with you on everything about what Trump had done wrong, except the constitutionally that you could charge him, said that there would be civil and criminal uh, possibilities. Do you see any real civil uh, cases that could have teeth in them? Very much so. Um, you know, the, the more and more information has been coming out and will be coming out about the direct ties between the president and the extremist groups that were on the front lines of uh, taking over Congress. But uh, my colleague, uh, Benny Thompson, has brought uh, a lawsuit under the KKK Act, which um, was another reconstruction measure that was set up to allow civil suits against people who uh, conspire to interfere with congressional operations. And of course, that's what it was when you think about it. What Trump did with those mobs was to try to interfere with the counting of the Electoral College vote. And what Vice President Pence did, to his credit, was refuse to reject the electors coming in from Pennsylvania and from Arizona and Georgia and other states. But all they wanted to do was send those electors back so they could declare there was a failure of a majority in the Electoral College, sending it into a contingent election in the House, which Trump would have won, because we vote there not one member, one vote, but one state, one vote. We were very close to... Uh, seeing a successful coup in America. And he might have declared martial law to quell the chaos that he had unleashed upon us. So it could have gone in a number of different directions there, but all of it was aiming towards keeping Trump in office, as he very honestly said he was going to do. It would be a continuation and not a peaceful transfer of power. 
Here is, here's Gilbert in Annapolis, Maryland. Gilbert, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Hello. Uh, thank you. I appreciate what uh, Congressman uh, Raskin has, been, uh, has, has done. Uh, <clears throat> I want to point out that uh, one of the main reasons why 74 million Americans voted for essentially a dictatorship rather than representative government is that we don't really have representative government. And what I mean by that is that when ordinary citizens write to their <clears throat> members of Congress, whether it's in the House or the Senate, uh, or in Maryland or in Pennsylvania or Virginia, uh, <clears throat> elsewhere, their, their messages do not get to the members of Congress. They only get to uh, uh, overworked, underpaid, incompetent, and ill-motivated staff members who just try to deceive the constituent into thinking that their message has actually reached the well, I, Congress. I, I got to say, Gilbert, you express a very high level of cynicism by calling all congressional staff members incompetent, but I'd rather have Congressman Raskin re respond to that. Well, thank you, Gilbert. Um, I, I don't know who your representative is, but um, <clears throat> I think I speak for the vast majority of people in Maryland delegation in that we pride ourselves on um, active and engaged constituent service and um, dynamic interaction. Uh, I, I take home 10 or 15 uh, letters a week from constituents, and I call those people. Um, I write or I edit every letter that we send out. We do get thousands of letters and emails a week, but I've got a fantastic district office staff um, led by Kathleen Connor, and we take everybody's email messages and letters seriously and calls, including people from around the country, and we've been getting more of those. But I think that your general point is correct, that there's been some breakdown in the connection between members and the people, but a lot of that has to do with gerrymandering, as was mentioned before, as well as the Electoral College, um, whose uh, booby traps are now obvious to the world to see after uh, the nightmare of uh, the president's incitement of mob violence against, um, you know, the counting of the Electoral College votes on January 6th. So I think there are a lot of reforms that we need to continue the progress of democracy in America. I mean, if you look at where our Constitution has gone, it's always been in the direction of making things more democratic, getting rid of state legislative selection of U.S. senators and giving it to the people, allowing women to vote dismantling race barriers in voting through the 14th and 15th Amendments and the Voting Rights Act. Giving Gilbert. people in D.C. into the 23rd Amendment the right to participate in presidential elections, and the next step, of course, would be statehood for people in D.C. So I agree we need to move in that direction. I would not blame it on the hardworking and underpaid people who are staffers who are you know, dealing with a lot of... Uh, uh, anxiety in the public, precisely I'm because of the propaganda that Donald Trump has been putting out over us. I'm glad you mentioned the issue of anxiety because that's a mental health issue, and you have talked openly about your son's struggle with depression. Earlier this month, you and other members of the Montgomery County delegation announced that more than $7 million would be used to expand mental health services. Why is this, in your view, important funding, especially during the pandemic? Well, the, the pandemic has been a period of a lot of isolation and loneliness for people. Um, the level of mental stress has been going up on every conceivable measure, Kojo. Um, and 
Um, you know, we've, of course, seen the terrible heartache in our family uh, related to this. And, um, you know, people have uh, a lot of struggles psychologically and emotionally, and that's just in the human condition. But if you add to that uh, all kinds of uh, social isolation and division and polarization and a public dialogue that's based on, um, you know, race baiting and, um, you know, meanness and viciousness towards people, it becomes a very hostile environment. And we've heard from so many young people around the country who've been struggling during this period. So I think we, we need a politics and we need a government that is conducive towards just basic decency for people so they can lead their lives in, in peace and in freedom. Here is Eric in Ward 6. Eric, your turn. Hi, Congressman Raskin. I had a question. Was the Gang of Eight briefed before the Capitol insurrection? And if so, will this information be declassified? And if they weren't, um, why weren't they briefed? Um, I, I'm not, I don't know what you're referring to, but we are supporting, I'm strongly supporting the creation of a 9-11-style commission um, that would look into all of the events that took place in a comprehensive and systematic way, uh, both on, uh, you know, the president's uh, incitement, the mobilization of extremist groups, what took place there, and why we were not ready for it. So, uh, you know, I, I hope we get the answers to all of the questions that are out there. Um, I, you know, so I, I hope we don't get into a situation where we're just blaming the Capitol Police, the people who are on the front lines of that medieval-style violence and who are being, you know, beaten and pummeled with American flags and Confederate battle flags. Um, they did everything they could. We'll, try, we'll, we'll look at whatever decisions were made above them uh, by, you know, the Capitol Police leadership, um, and then we'll try to figure out what happened. Tom Sherwood. Congressman, uh, uh, President Biden has uh, taken office. He's pursuing his agenda, including the $1.9 uh, trillion relief package and all of that. Uh, what are you? There are many people who are saying he's doing a pretty good job of calming things down on the national level. But there are also progressives, and you are a progressive, who are complaining that he's already signaled he may not go forward with the $15 minimum wage aspect of the package. He might compromise too much. How would you assess Joe Biden, President Biden, here in the early days of his presidency and not the one we just had? Well, it's a remarkable breakthrough to have a president who actually believes in the government as an instrument of the common good in the public interest. And uh, Joe Biden is someone who leads with tremendous compassion uh, and solidarity for all people. Um, and uh, so I, I think that, that that is just such a refreshing, dramatic change in our politics. Um, and, uh, you know, obviously progressives are going to be fighting uh, for th those things that we've been pushing for for a long time, like a $15 minimum wage. I saw a study yesterday, Kojo, that said that today's minimum wage um, in real terms uh, is 15 or 20 percent less than it was when the minimum wage was first adopted. I mean, people really can't support their families on the minimum wage that exists. So, uh, you know, the, okay. the, the challenge of uh, political leadership is to figure out how far you can go in pushing for change, understanding that there will always be forces of inertia and conservatism against and you. 
I'm afraid we're just about out of time unless I can share this email with you. Barbara emails, talk about profiles and courage. I am proud to call him my congressman, obviously referring to you, Congressman Raskin. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kojo, and please tell me it ain't so that you're leaving the air. I'm not leaving the air completely. Sherwood and I will still be around to continue to pollute the air. Don't worry about it. Well, I love you. you guys. Thank you for having me on. Thank you. Today's Politics Hour was produced by Sidney Grannon. Coming up Monday for the last 20 years, D.C. has been among the fastest gentrifying cities in the nation. A recent study says that's changing, but is it? Then Kojo for Kids welcomes soccer superstar and activist Abby Wambach. She led the U.S. women's team to two World Cups and won two Olympic gold medals. We're taking kids' questions about soccer and standing up for what they think is right. That's at noon Monday. Until then, you have a wonderful weekend and stay safe. Tom Sherwood, big plans? Uh, No, it's too cold to do anything. (laughs) Okay, well, stay safe anyway, and thank you all for listening. I'm Coach O'Neill. The Coach O'Neill Show is produced by Julie Deppenbrock, Sidney Granin, Lauren Marco, Kurt Gardiner, Richard Cunningham, and Inez Renike. Our managing producer is Ingalisa Schrobstorff. Our broadcast engineer is Rashad Young. Today's engineer was Mike Kidd. For past shows and more content, visit kojoshow.org. WAMU 88.5 is your listener-supported NPR news station in the greater Washington, D.C. region. You can support the Kojo Namdi Show and all the regional coverage you value by becoming a member today. Click the Donate button at WAMU.org and thanks.